Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Woo! You speak Salinity, let's hear something. <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whenever my friends find out I speak a couple of different languages, I like say something, and usually it's like say something bad in, in that language. Say something bad. Say something bad. I don't. I wouldn't know. It. I don't know what to do. Okay, so there's one really uh, one of my favorite things that I I, I truly still don't understand. Um, in Sileti, we say uh, to like to to call your brother-in-law, you say hala. Hala. <laughs> no, that's a Bengali thing. Yeah, it's like a problem. It's like shala yeah. or like hala. Shala, yeah. So, hala, but, hala. But we have an in, we have an insult as well that goes like hala hala. You know what I mean? <laughs> So that's something I've like I've never understood. Um, you know, but it's interesting because I think the other dialects yeah. sound a little bit like Shuddho. Like Maya is girl. Mm-hmm. Some in Borishal they say Maya. I think the proper is May. Mm-hmm. Where did Furi come from? Furi, like Furi is like complete. It doesn't even sound anything like May. I I have a theory. Um, I think it's because see that I mean for one thing, so that's all the way to the east side. And it's also one of the more hillier regions, even though Bangladesh is like totally flat. Um, and so that I and my like this might be completely inaccurate. Um, I think so that was like where all the landowners were. Um, so it's it's definitely like sort of been doing its own thing. And even even now, like I notice this as well when I'm like interacting with my Bengali friends or like Bengali coworkers, it's like Sileti sort of tend to cluster together and they stay they together. Do. And we're very behind like Fortai, like we we stay to ourselves, we yeah. stay covered, stuff like that. They, and they Sileti didn't Sileti want to. Succeed from all of this? I, I have no idea. I'm sure you know it's a Bengali thing. Everyone wants to sort of do their own thing. Uh, but that, that's one thing I've noticed. I've heard it's also very developed. Silat is. I would. I mean, I've I spent quite a few summers in Silat um, and have visited Dhaka as well. I think each has its own like perks. Dhaka is very like hustle bustle, lots of traffic. Silat is a lot more laid back. Where like you you say you want something to get done, it usually means like two to three days is fast. Like that's it's slow. It's slow pace. Really? Yeah, it's slow pace. It's not. Dhaka. Nice. Well, Dhaka, it takes two to three days to do something because of the traffic. Yeah, because it's ridiculous. I anytime I've planned to do more than one thing in Dhaka, it just never happens because you could get one thing done. Because the other half of the day you're stuck in traffic. And I've I've been through like Dhaka traffic itself. It's it's insane. Uh, there is like clusters and there's like one there's maybe one cup and of course no one listens to the road signals like yeah. uh, people just sort of do their thing you know what's interesting I just realized coming back to New York I don't think I've met more than one or two like Sileti Bengalis um, like Sileti like m- that would fall under like the millennial category of Bengalis like go-getters really? I have so many Sileti friends really? I have a ton of Sileti friends maybe and they have huge families maybe it's just me then that's then, really interesting yeah Oh, I didn't know you were Saudi until actually. I don't know if I knew that. That's really interesting. Yeah. But you grew up in the Middle East. Yeah, I grew up in the Middle East. So I spent quite a lot of time uh, in Dubai. Um, was born and raised in uh, New York, and then my family moved back to Dubai for a while. So I was I finished up high school there, decided to do my undergrad there, and then I moved back to New York. How's the uh, how the how's the education system there? I. Uh, Honestly, I mean, I, I went to a private bitter school, so it was, it was pretty good for me, at least. Um, a lot of things are subsidized by the government there as well, as long as you're like your citizen, which is like another discussion in itself. Like people don't get naturalized there easily, if they do at all. Um, education system is accredited as well. So the college I went to was accredited by this board in Maryland. I forget what, like some, some board. It, it, it's legitimate, to say the least. And there are a lot of international campuses there. Like NYU's got a campus in Abu Dhabi. 
which is like another state for Dubai. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I've seen that. The so you talk about talk, we talk about the citizenship thing because mm-hmm. we take what we have in this country for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Because we, I mean, I'm a citizen not by birthright, but if even if I wasn't a citizen, my children would be automatically citizens if mm-hmm. they were born here, which is which is not something that other countries have. Like mm-hmm. most countries don't have that. Yeah, that, that's girl. I, I feel like a lot of let me backtrack a little bit. I mean, it, it's something that's quite quite very unique to the American system here. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that we have like the American dream and like yeah. people from Bangladesh, they want to immigrate to America or like the UK as well, where eventually you get naturalized, you become a, a British citizen or an American citizen and you're, you're an American pretty much. Um, with a lot of countries in the Middle East, um, the way it works is let's say you, you're born there, you live there, you study there, you work there, you could die there. You don't become a citizen. You're still like an expat, um, and you know unless you're a student, if you're young, below the below the working age, unless you have a job there and you have a work visa, like if if you don't have those and you're past like a certain deadline, like you pretty much become like an illegal like alien almost. Yes, yeah, so, and if you don't have a job, then they'll give you X amount of time to get a job, or they'll kick you out. Exactly. That's pretty much it. Like you have an X amount of time, um, and there, I think there's two parts of the argument there. Like there's a part that's like, okay, I get it. Like if, if you're there, you're you're there to work. Uh, you're there for a job, reasonably higher wage than where you may have been. But then the other side is like people that have been there for quite some time. Like they know yeah. the language, they know the culture. That's who, that's how they identify home. Um, there's no there's no real process, or it's, it's been very recent that they've started. I think implementing something like that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that uh, the U.S. has such a lax immigration system, and you know, despite uh, some politicians trying to change that, is because if you look at the any chart of the native American, not Native American, but the the native population in the U.S., they're not replacing themselves. Hmm. So they don't. Americans don't have children, mm-hmm. uh, and, or have children very late in life, and have very few children. So if you were to take out immigrant reproduction rates, and you were just to consider non-immigrant reproduction rates, the population is, would be decreasing significantly. Mm-hmm. So part of that, that's part of the reason why we have such a lax immigration system, because we need more people. Mm-hmm. We need we need people to run the economy. If it wasn't yeah. for immigration, that's why it doesn't these people that are so anti-immigration, they just like they don't really get that the economy would completely falter if there wasn't for immigration. That that's fair. And like whenever someone brings up like the topic of immigration, I feel like as New Yorkers, like we take it quite for granted because we're all very like oh we have to like we have it's a melting pot here right so we have to like see other cultures and we were exposed to it from a young age so to us it becomes a norm but there is definitely parts of the country where like people aren't don't have that much exposure one of the things i I forget where i read this i i think one of my um favorite authors jumpa lahiri who's also a bengali author who is it jumpa lahiri of course she teaches in princeton Um, i think it was a quote from one of her books namesake the, the namesake and like uh, interpreter maladies, uh, unaccustomed earth, the collection of short stories. Um, she had said something. I, I forget exactly what the verbiage is, but it was something like you know people will attack what they what they think is ugly because it it makes them feel ugly. So then they'll attack it. Mm-hmm. So in my perspective, I mean, I think no no one's really a bad person. Like no one, not a lot of people have bad intentions, like true bad intentions, right? So I think it's a projection of like being a little bit insecure and not understanding it and thinking, hey, if this person's going to come here, like my worth is going to go down. Yeah, right? absolutely. And then again, just, just practically speaking, New York's mm-hmm. economy would crumble mm-hmm. uh, if well, if it wasn't for immigration. Uh, and some people can even say without illegal immigration, New York economy would crumble. There's a lot of economies that are heavily dependent on mm-hmm. immigration. So it's interesting. So the Middle East, I, I had a family member 
through my wife who uh, lived in Qatar for a mm-hmm. long time and passed away and were basically his children who were born and raised there mm-hmm. had to immediately go back to Bangladesh. Oh, wow. Which was not immediately. Sorry, had to go back to Bangladesh. Yeah, because they were, like know, they were given, yeah, yeah, because they were there. No, they were older. They were older. older, but they were there because their dad worked for the government. And they were right? with the family. And they were yeah. yeah. So as soon as the dad didn't work, he passed away unexpectedly. They were told to go back, which was really frustrating for me. And I find it really frustrating because, and you also hear all these stories about how uh, Southeast Asians or South Asians. Uh, and even North Africans mm-hmm. are treated in Middle Eastern countries, and it's really, really depressing. Mm-hmm. I find it really frustrating because, especially because they're Muslim countries, yeah. And it's like this, uh, like like this unspoken caste system mm-hmm. where like brown people in the Middle Eastern countries are considered, uh, you know, lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that I I observed also quite a bit. One of the things I like to do is always like, even if I have an opinion, I always try to consider the other side, uh, put myself in that shoes just to see for perspective. You could pass for Arab though. I've, you know what, I think it's so funny, like I get, I get told that when I was in Dubai and then when I'm here in New York, people say, oh, I thought you were Hispanic, man, what's up? Wow, yeah. okay. So it's, yeah, I, guess I can it's, see that. It's, it's the brown thing, I guess, like yeah. being mocha color, you sort of fit into anywhere. Uh, but like the other perspective and the other, the other argument that I think sort of makes sense, but I personally don't agree with is like, they'll say, okay, well, um, sure, compared to like modern standards, like South Asian laborers are not getting paid as much for doing like construction work and things of that nature. But then you pull, you pull a few of them aside and they're saying, hey, I, I, I'm actually making money and I'm spending, I'm sending, I'm remitting the money back home to Bangladesh and India and like I'm, I'm paying for my, like my family's school and stuff. So it's also that perspective, but I, I agree with you. I think there's definitely a lot of work to be done there, especially because it feels like they're almost treated like, second, they actually are treated like second yeah. class citizens, right? Yeah. Um, it, it was, I think it was moving or like forcing myself to move back to New York that like made me realize that because for the longest time I was there, yeah. I was in a very much a bubble. Even though it was like a nice, glorious, expensive, beautiful, air-conditioned bubble, it was still a bubble. Yeah. And like moving here and like snapping back to reality, I think forced me to like start considering things from different people's perspectives. Did you have access to like American culture movies mm-hmm. when you were there? Yeah. It, again, like Hollywood is like everywhere, right? Yeah. So it was like Bollywood. So like the way it's like portrayed in the Middle East is it's something to be like to be seen. Um, a lot of people are like trying to adapt, like wanting to be American. They have like the brands and of course all the food stuff and everything is like there. Yeah. Um, th- I think that was one of the things that I realized after moving back here. Because when, when you're in New York, like you feel that like authentic culture. You feel that, that pulse that like New York City has, right? And I, I didn't quite get it there, especially in Dubai. It was very, um, like I, I don't like to say, but it was very artificial. Really? Yeah, I, I did. I didn't quite enjoy. It. I think it's, and I, I say this to a lot of my friends too. It's like it's nice to visit for a while, like for a little bit, like a week maybe. But after a while, you're just like, it's kind of hot here, man. There's not a lot of stuff to do. It's a lot of sand. I've heard that from many people yeah. about Abu Dhabi, uh, especially Abu Dhabi, because it, it literally is man-made, right? Yeah. Most of it is man-made. Yeah, m- most of it is man-made. It's, I mean, especially Dubai as well. Like it's all glass, and like that's like to boost tourism because that's how like they get most of their. Uh, most of their money basically right yeah. like there's not a lot of oil in dubai itself in that city state they get most of their money for tourism oh i didn't know that yeah uh, so then you move back to uh new york and then yeah. what then what did you do yeah i i bounced around for a while to be honest um not some i think it's something that i can now look fondly back on just because i've, I've been through it like for lack of a better term like i ate shit for a while basically mm. um and I, and I am grateful for it i i didn't know anyone when i moved here 
Um, my undergrad degree was from some bumble fudge university back in the Middle East that no one knew about, so I had no network. Uh, I took the first job I could find. Uh, first job I could find was in car sales that I got like a hookup from a family friend. Um, and that was, I would say, the shittiest year of my life. Wow. Um, I was, like, I needed money, of course, like, I was here with my family and, you know, I, I needed to pay. Um, so, with the way car sales works in New York, at least, um, it's all commission. It's yeah. literally all commission. So, you work six, seven used days. Used or new? Used and new. So, I used to work at a, a dealership in, uh, on Long, in Long Island City. So, not, not so far away from here. I was, uh, okay. I was on Northern Boulevard. So, okay. I used to sell, like, Volkswagens and then used cars as well from the back. Um, there's a lot more money in used cars. Why is there more money in used cars? Because you're buying, as a dealership, you're buying low and selling high. So you could technically like undercut someone on like the price that they're selling their car for. And then you, you know, for lack of a better term, you jack it up a few thousand dollars and that's all like profit. So you make, a dealership will make their profit off used cars, but they'll make their units or like the number of cars that they're pushing out through new cars where there's not a lot of like margins because they're so new. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the, but the car companies give you other incentives, right? If you get units sold? Exactly. So like as a as a salesman, you'll have like incentives or what we used to call like spins or like commission from the, the dealership, not from the dealership, from the car manufacturer. Uh, but most of the money came from like your commission sales from the dealership. Okay. Um, so I was basically incentivized to jack up the prices when we're like, quote, you know, jack up the quotes when I would like quote my customers. I, wow. I didn't enjoy it. I really didn't. I, I still remember my first sale. Uh, this kid came in with uh, like a Capital One pre-approval letter and I was like looking at him and I'm like, you should not be buying this car. And I go to my manager and like I, I, I get like the buyer's order and I'm like, this kid should not be buying this car. Man. Why not? Like, he, has a, he has a decent pre-approval from Capital One, but like the, like the career he had, like the job he had that he was like telling me he's filling out the credit application, the money he was, he was making. I'm like, bro, you, you really should not be getting this car. So what did you sell him? <laughs> It was, a, a, <laughs> it was a used Volkswagen Jetta. And, like, I, I still think about it sometimes. Um, and I, I remember very distinctly, like, I went to my manager with, like, the buyer's order. And, like, he had signed it. And I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't, I don't I'm not comfortable with this. And he's like, turn around, go sell the car. You get your commission. Like, that's what, that's what you need. Do you um, remember how much the commission was? Yeah, it was, I think I got paid, like, 1200 off of that. So, like, what? yeah, used, used cars, you, you, you can make $1,200 for one sale? You, it's a used car thing. And it, it depends on how you work it. So, like, when, when I go to a dealership now, like, when I'm, like, car shopping, yeah. I know everything, and I know when they're, like, BSing me. Like, I know when they're, $1, like... $1,200 for one sale. I know when they're, like... I'm quitting my job. Dude, when, when I go to a dealership, and they're, like, yeah, so here's a fee, here's a fee, here's a fee. In the back of my head, I'm, like, why, why the fuck are you bullshitting me? Excuse my language. Wow. Uh, but it's... I think it's my most memorable experience that year of like eating shit basically, working yeah. that job and then doing like task rabbit on the side of like you know cleaning people's houses, mopping their. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. You did that? Yeah, I, like I dude, I needed like I needed money. Like I was like, that's cool. I needed money. Um, I love that. I love that. I, that year was memorable for me, mainly because I learned to hustle, yeah. and I just learned like the work ethic of like, okay, you put in like what you get, and that's so you know that's something that's like. I think right now I'm in a comfortable position where I can get my head, head out of the sand and like look around and say, okay, here's what I'm noticing within our own Bengali community, right? Where like we'll have people that are first generation immigrants who's like uh, moms or dads were may, they were maybe certified or doing like technical jobs back in Bangladesh, but over here they're not doing much or they're like driving a taxi or like they have like a small deli. Like those are the role models that they have. And I, I notice like it's a very dangerous ecosystem. Where, like those are what that's what they aspire to be. Mainly because they don't. There's really no one like for them to look up to and say, "Hey, that's what I want to do. I want to get out of this like 
cycle of like driving Uber. There's nothing wrong with that, but like, you know, your family yeah. came here like to give you a good education, obviously, or else why yeah. the hell would they leave Bangladesh, right? Like, yeah, come on, man, you owe it to yourself. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So then, what? Then what did you do? How long were you there for? I was there for about a year, um, and then I, I remember towards the end, my like even my my, my older sister who had like helped me get the job because she knew the person who was working there, and like he basically got me in. She had like told me like, listen, you're you're wasting your potential in car sales. Like I'm worried for you, yeah. and this is like I've almost been doing it for a year, and I'm like. What the hell do you think I like? You don't think I know? I don't like. I didn't want to do car sales. My, the funniest like last conversations I had with one of my uh, clients that like I sold a car to. She, she was like telling me about how she's like an opera singer like in New York City and like she travels the world and her husband's the manager and like they're doing all these things and she got so into it and she was like I've always wanted to be like ever since I was young I've wanted to do this and like she was so excited so she didn't mean anything by like what she told me. She was like, Have you always wanted to be a car salesman? I'm like, are you kidding me, man? I didn't grow up wanting to be a car salesman. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, I I don't I didn't picture myself doing that. Um, so I I used to like go out to networking events just to talk to people, just to yeah. see, just to like meet meet me, like talk. Let me talk to as many people as I could, um, and then ended up getting this job, which I think, I honestly think I got just from charming my ex boss. It was like, all right, I'll I'll take a chance on you. Um, Kick bud did well, and then started moving up from there. What industry was that in? Uh, that was a startup uh, in health tech, so uh, it was basically selling hearing aids oh, okay. online. Yeah, it was fun. It was yeah, fun so sales experience, even that, even though that year wasn't uh, was, mm-hmm. wasn't great. Yeah, sales experience is is, is really valuable. I mean, you can apply that in any industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my first job was it wasn't a tough sell though. Like I it tra- my first job, I traveled the country selling products for this company, but it was it was from services, but it wasn't a tough sell. So I can't say I had. Hardcore sales experience, but I loved. But I was, my title was relationship manager. But I love that experience. It's really mm-hmm. good client relations experience, uh, and it's still valuable today. I, yeah, you know what? It's so funny. I was. We were just at a like we we were we're hoping to like develop this partnership with my current company and this other like organization that does like you know boot camps and coding boot camps for like college graduates. And like when I told them like I was in sales, like everyone has this like misconception of like sales and like oh it's a sleazy salesman. Like, I used to be a sleazy car salesman. I'm not a sleazy car salesman anymore. Yeah. Um, but everyone has this misconception of like, oh, this guy's going to try and sell me something or this is what's happening. Like I, I enjoy doing this and I'm, I think I'm fortunate enough to like be really good at it because I, I spent like, I invested myself in this and I also have been fortunate enough to, to do well in my roles that like my companies have been okay with me experimenting with other things in the role, um, where I found out, okay, that's, that's, those other things are not for me. Like I enjoy sales. I enjoy like the relationship aspect. Um, I enjoy un helping people understand the value that a product provides and what needs they have and how we can be a match. Yeah. That's, I think that's the core of sales. Yeah. Do you know Gary Vee? Do you watch Gary Vee? I do watch Gary Vee. I, I used to watch him quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, I love Gary Vee. He, I watched his video yesterday. He talked about, he basically said, and again, I don't, I don't take anything, any people, any of these people, uh, especially like social media people, mm-hmm. to heart, but I think sometimes it's just like, uh, sometimes he just says really uh, smart things and not that it applies to everything, but I thought it was interesting. He said that you should spend a lot. You don't you shouldn't spend that much time uh, convincing people to buy your product. Mm-hmm. Spend the time finding people that will want your product. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting, and he's saying there's a lot of people that actually are already looking for your product. So spend more time finding those people mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to convince somebody that doesn't want your product yeah. to want your product. So I thought that was really interesting. It it really is like and it's it's one of those things that like 
I mean, we're all like in this digital age, like we're, we all do our research before we buy anything, right? Like, I think 30 years ago, our parents maybe would like trust the, the salesman and like Sears to like tell them which washing machine or which dishwasher, or which refrigerator is the best one for them. Yeah. But for us, like we do all this research, we'll go to like maybe the store to like touch it, but then we'll go back and buy it from Amazon because we don't have to talk to anyone on Amazon, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So like sales to me is making sure that I understand what my client is actually wanting. And if I'm able to help with that or if I'm able to like provide that value proposition for them, then I'll be like, hey, this is something that we can work on. And if not, like, that's fine. Like, I'll, I'll point you somewhere else. I'm not going to like damage the relationship. Like, I'll point you somewhere else. What kind of sales are you in now? Um, basically, financial technology. I, I more or less broker like fun, funding for businesses. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So these are... Uh, what stage are most of these companies in that are looking for funding? Variety of stages. So some of them are very early on and we don't quite typically like work with people that are like quite very early on, but some of them are very late stage. Like they're, they've been around for decades and like they just need, they need a little bit quick working capital, things of that nature. Yeah. Mm, okay. It, it's fun. Um, I, I, I honestly want to do also talk a little bit more about like the Bengali culture here in New York. Cause I yeah. think, I think it's something that is often overlooked. Uh, yeah especially with like Bengali millennials here. Like I didn't, I didn't know about the Bengali community here until I actually met you. Oh, cool. And, but then I had to take the initiative to like, actually be like, okay, I want to like see what the Bengali, you know, what's, what's the Bengali society here? Like what's, what's, what's popping here. Right. Um, but like, I, you know, it's come, I'm glad I actually got a chance to like interact with Bengalis of New York and then yeah. you know, all these other organizations. There's so many Bengali people doing amazing things like we talked about. And I, I mean, didn't know any, that many Bengali people outside of my circle of friends until like, maybe a year, year ago so it's so many organizations so many people doing amazing stuff i, mm -hmm. I love it uh, i hope it continues i think uh i think uh you know there's so many organizations they each have their own um goals and i, I hope people uh and me too like i'm, I'm one of the i hope i hope you know people don't lose momentum i hope we don't lose momentum because we're mm -hmm. doing amazing things like I told you, there's this event, you know, there's, we're getting involved in politics, there's a new organization called BOP, mm -hmm. they're, you know, f focusing on, you know, political fundraising and, you know, uh, getting involved with local politics, that's really important, you know, all of these, you know, organizations like Bengali's in New York, Loud that you talked mm -hmm. about, you know, the Bengali Health Project, uh, Mental Health Project, there's so many organizations doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing I'm really curious about is, I wonder what will happen when some of these people get a little bit older and start having families mm -hmm. like do you, I think about that because I think right now okay I don't, I don't people know that I'm married but I don't have children uh -huh. I wonder what will happen because I don't know if I'll have as much time for this kind of stuff so I wonder what like I feel like I hope we don't lose momentum with the next mm -hmm. group of uh, Bengali kids yeah. you know I hope they like kind of uh, what's the you know what's the you know, pass the baton, pass or, the baton like, on, yeah. or you know carry the torch forward because there's a lot of good work being done but I hope it doesn't stop when some of these people like myself or some of these other people like you know, start having kids and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's not something that, like I've, I've thought too much about, but I, I also have noticed that there is a certain like age demographic of people that have like started the organizations. Everyone's usually in like their mid to late twenties. Yeah. Right? I'm the old, I'm probably one of the older ones. Yeah. I mean, you're not that old. I don't think so. I'm 36. That's not old. Like, no, well, definitely older than that. But no, I, I absolutely yeah, agree with like, you. All these, most of these organizations are started by people in their late twenties. Absolutely. Right? And that's the thing, right? And I think that's part of like the whole immigrant culture, right? Because people that are in their late twenties, um, they either weren't born here, or they came here when they were very young. So they they still had that exposure to like Bengali culture. Mm. Like the the roots are set in Bangladesh. The roots are set in Bengali culture. And like one of the things I've noticed 
Um, and this is like coming from someone that has lived in New York, gone to like middle school, like there's a there's a larger disconnect for kids that are, were like born here and raised here, which is like expected. Like you're you're naturalizing into American citizens, you're going to celebrate like American holidays and so forth because you're an American. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's that disconnect between identifying culturally as like, oh, I'm from Bangladesh or I'm from Silat, uh, right? Um, like like case in point, like when I was in middle school, like I would, I didn't like the fact that I was Bengali. Yeah. That. I really didn't. I was like, I'm American, but I don't want to be like brown. I don't want to be like Bengali. I want to be American. Is there a lot of Bengali kids in your school? No, not not where I was. If there were, like, if there were other like Indians or other like yeah. Pakistani people, like that, no one yeah. really, no one really wanted to associate with that. And yeah, I think I like it. I like being attached to my Bengali roots. It's because I had that advantage of being in the Middle East, being surrounded by like you know Islamic culture and like yeah. different different cultures, different um, different exposures to like. There's more Bengalis there, basically, yeah. right? That's like that's one of the things I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, listen, same same here. I mean, I probably if somebody asked me if I was Indian, I'd probably you know when I was younger just say yes. I mean, yeah. I didn't even want to get into the conversation. Oh, what's Bangladesh? What is that? You know, uh, I, I yeah. And now at least part of it is you know like at least now like you see you turn on the TV, you see brown uh, Karen doesn't have to be Bengali, but just like South Asian uh, people on TV that don't fit these stereotypes, mm-hmm. right? One of my favorite shows is called Atypical. Yeah, mm-hmm. you should watch it. It's really funny. It's about this, uh, this. Uh, now he's in college. He's a college student. He he's uh, he's he's uh, he has Asperger's. Mm-hmm. So he's he, uh, he's he actually he has aut- he has autism. But anyway, the show's about him. But he has a best friend uh-huh. that's Indian. Yeah, his best friend's Indian, but his best friend's like this. Uh, uh, this the character is like like. Gets all the girls uh-huh. and like super cool, whereas like the ch- that wouldn't be the stereotypical brown character on TVs like or before. No. The stereotypical brown character would be the geeky guy. Oh, he never gets girls. You know, always studying, like really good at spelling. That's so funny. Yeah. But this show, I and I love that, and I follow him on Instagram. I forget I'm forgetting his name, but the show's called Typical, and the the, the character is a he's an Indian character, Indian American character. Mm-hmm. His name is Sam, but he's cool. Yeah. So I found that for that, I think that's super cool. I think that's amazing because yeah. you wouldn't see that in the nineties. Mm-hmm. You're seeing that now, and somebody like you know, growing up now is like, wow, he looks like me, and he has a name like me, and you know, and they also don't focus on like the stereotypical stuff about oh, his parents you know are Indian and yeah, yeah. they you know eat with their hands like the stereotypical stuff. Is he just a normal kid? And he's like super cool. He gets all the girls, and like he's like super cool. Like the main character looks up to him because he's like the cool kid. Yeah, I thought that's cool. There was no cool kids on TV growing up that were brown. That's that's so yeah. That's really interesting. Even in like movies and such. Like I, I think the the first role model that I can think of maybe the first two is like what who Hasan Minaj and Aziz Ansari maybe that's about it. But they're, they're also pretty new. They're, I mean, yeah, that last two three years. I yeah, mean, exactly. Uh, uh, Hasan Minaj. I mean, he was in you know Comedy Central, but. Yeah, I mean, he's blown up recently. Yeah. You, you're not going to know, you probably won't know this, but the first brown character I saw on TV was probably, uh, like, on a movie. He wasn't even brown. No? This is what the part, this is, this is what, and he, he actually acknowledged, it's a, it's a movie called Short Circuit. Short there was a bunch of them. There was, like, five of them. It's about this robot that gets hit with lightning and turns alive. Okay. Okay? But then he has a sidekick who's this Indian guy. Played by a white guy. Of course. But he wore a brown face. Of course. And he's actually a famous actor. And he did the Indian accent. And he was like this geeky guy. He was, the, you know, he was 
best friends with this robot that turned alive. Short circuit. Any 90s kid would know it because it would always be on TV. Yeah. But he was an Indian guy who's this idiot. But recently he actually talked about it he, and he, he acknowledged like how discriminatory it was. Like mm-hmm. that character. And the fact that they hired a white guy to play an Indian guy. Like how disrespectful is that? They hired an Indian guy. They hired a white guy to play an Indian guy with this Indian accent. And the, but the actor, like he, you know, he he's, he really acknowledged. He was like, yeah, like it was just that was gonna really, up. really, yeah. yeah, it was effed up. Like I mean, I yeah, it's really interesting. But he was the first guy in the, that I that, that I saw like in an Indian movie, and it was stereotypical, a heavy accent, you know, super geeky, like you know, like never got the girl. Like it was just really, really interesting. Like I'm glad we're seeing more of that now. Like Hassan Minaj is like yeah. you know, good looking, super cool guy on TV. You know, even in um, in Master of None, I mean, whatever you know, you could say whatever you want about Aziz Ansari about you know what happened with his yeah. and that situation. But the guy's hilarious, and in his show, he's like the guy that gets the girls. He's mm-hmm. cool. Like yeah. you know, it's not like you know this geeky like you know tech guy. It's it's definitely a cultural shift. I think that now it's like I I think a big part of it is because our generation is becoming more and more assimilated within like yeah. what quote unquote American culture is right. Um, Whereas now, like, if you were to ask, like, if you were, I guess if you were to ask, like, someone, like, if you were to ask a Bengali, like, second generation or first generation now and go, like, what are you? Like, oh, I'm, I'm American. What really? I'm, yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's something what a lot of people would say. This, I don't know why this random thought popped into my head, but I, like, I, I laugh very ironically when I see, like, these posts on Instagram of, like, m- these memes making fun of, like, different districts in Bangladesh. I'm like, what? Which, what do you know about them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. people are like, what do you know about them? Like, so you, you're probably... Because, like, the, the people that are, like, joking about it or making fun of it, like, I've probably, like, been to Bangladesh only maybe once or twice or a couple yeah, of times. Yeah. And, like, there's nothing wrong with that. But, like, yeah, yeah. you're joking about, like, Biani Vasari. Like, I'm, maybe it's because I'm Biani Vasari, but it's, like... What is that? I don't I, understand that. That's the thing. So, I've, Okay, first of all, I reposted stuff because I yeah. just thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Not knowing anything about Biani Bazaar. But I thought that, like, the meme was hilarious comparing it like, what is it with Biani Bazaar? So, supposedly, Biani Bazaar, we're very shrewd business people. So like we're we're more so like dollars and cents and everything of that nature and like it makes there's a lot of successful Siliti Bengalis really? out there yeah yeah we you know we, there was this post I remember, somebody got really mad and sent us a really nasty message I'm sure I'm sure they're like hated. some I guess that person was from Biani Bazaar too I'm sure and I was like dude like I he got really <laughs> mad and I was like dude first of all I didn't even make the meme <laughs> I posted it from Siliti you know there's like a Siliti yeah. meme page yeah and they're hilarious I just reposted it it was funny and I, and he got really mad. Like, <laughs> It's I'm, hilarious. I'm sure, but then it's like those things. People are like, oh, I don't talk to Nwakhalis. Or like, oh, I, I'm, I don't talk to like Gulab Gwanj. I'm like, what do you... What do you know? What, what do you know? I, well, I, I wrote I don't know if I wrote a blog about yeah. this whole uh, village divide. Yeah. I wrote a blog about it. And I talked about how silly most of this stuff is. And I hate when people are like, oh, you're from Borishal? Oh, you must be this. That's YZ. Like, I find like, it so frustrating. Like, I have literally spent... That's exactly what I say in my blog. Is like, I've literally spent 0.1% of my life there. Like... How does like all these characteristics you assign to yeah. people from that village apply to me? Like this is silly. Like, this is so silly. The the thought that like comes into my head and like this is such a silly thing. I'll be like, Dura-la-la-la. Like what are you talking about? Like, the, I, don't, like, I, don't know. I don't know. That was a thing. You, it's really interesting. My, my favorite like Bengali things to say is like Durhor. Like, it's like shut, shut the oh, fuck wow. up. Yeah, like, Wait, so but do you speak Shuddha also? I don't speak like I I I can try to speak Shuddha, but it's not it's not that really? great. Yeah, it's not good. So what happens if you go to like a friend's house and the parents speak Shuddha? You just speak in Siliti? I'll just be like so I come and then I'll and then I'll like break it up with my Siliti. Wow, yeah, really? Yeah. That's interesting because most of my Siliti friends can't speak Shuddha. That that's the thing. Like, I wonder I, why. I mean, maybe it's because like they were like here. They were yeah, here yeah. too. 
Okay, yeah. then I have no idea. I literally yeah. have no idea. I mean, Sylvia, I only picked up like from like from home and like my family and like Hindi. It's from like watching Bollywood movies with my mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, interesting. And Chittagong, they also that's the other people uh, they have like really they have their accent is very distinct yeah Chittagong and Siliti like very very different like, you can it, tell I guess Nakali too right Nakali too they have their own th- they have their, they have a little bit different uh, it's very distinct too I guess yeah so Nakali Nakali Shondi Chittagong and Siliti mm-hmm. have their very distinct yeah it's it's one of those things but you know what this is such an interesting point so like I think for the, from the last year only itself that I've like started like networking with intent and I've realized, like, when I network with, like, other Bengalis, like, it's a lot easier than going to, like, networking events and networking with, with mainly, like, white people, right? Yeah. Mainly because, like, I, now I recognize, and it's, like, it's nepotism to a certain extent, but, like, I understand. Like, if I'm, if I'm speaking with two people and one of them is Bengali, like, I have a cultural identity with this person. Yeah. More likely than not, I'll, I'll, like, relate to them a lot better yeah. and I'll want to help them more. And it's, like, it's not the best thing ever, but it's something I've... I, I'm self-aware enough to like realize, but it's also used to my advantage. Like networking at like bony events and like figuring out like going going yeah. into events like with intent. Yeah. Knowing that if someone's Bengali, they'll probably help me out more than if I was like white or if they were white or like whatever other yeah. culture like I, I keep using white. Yeah. Um, but it's also I think because I'm self-aware with it, I'm I'm also very proactive in wanting to help people that are wanting to get out of that like that cycle of like working just like minimum wage jobs or like hourly jobs and wanting to get into corporate America. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so uh, yeah, and I'm glad you talked about networking. It's so important. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah, I, I guess I mean I've been going to events for so long. I mean, I'm, like I said, I've been going to networking events for so long. Now I'm definitely comfortable anywhere. Mm-hmm. One thing that I do notice though about, and I hate this about networking events, is like you'll go to a networking event, and it's always like the type A personalities mm-hmm. surrounding that one person that everybody wants to speak to. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you'll go to, like, an event where somebody's yeah. important speaking. You go in, you like, all the type A personalities basically run up to this person and yeah. surround them. And I don't like competing. I, I, I hate that. competing. Yeah. I hate competing. I don't like competing for people's attention. I, 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 I'm very comfortable speaking in front of public, uh, giving speeches and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I hate competing for somebody's attention. Like, yeah. I really like one-on-one conversations, small group conversations. But these, some, that's the problem with networking events. It's like, this type A people just, like... You know, they they want to suck up the energy of, yeah. especially that person that's really really important. Mm-hmm. So I actually like like I've noticed there's been a few networking events that I've gone to where the quote unquote important people um, or the people that you know let's say they're speaking, they don't stay in one place. That mm-hmm. they actually walk around. Yeah. Like they they don't stay in that like you know where this you know where the yeah. panel is. They themselves go you know go around and talk to different people. So I thought I think that's really interesting. And I've been. Um, you know, whenever I mean, I haven't done a panel for a while, but when I have, I've, I think I, I've been trying to do that because you know, the whole idea that like, oh, you're here and you know everything, everybody else should mm-hmm. come to you and you know try to talk to you is yeah. just silly. It it is incredibly frustrating, especially when like I was in between jobs or I was looking to like switch jobs and everyone everyone was obviously wanting the same thing and everyone was like trying to compete for this other person's yeah. attention. It was frustrating and it was one of those things that like made me leave networking events early where I'm like forget yeah. it I'm like, no, like I'm, no one wants to like yeah. talk to me or like talk to each other everyone wants yeah. to like you know yeah. kiss this guy's ass for whatever yeah. reason right um, the one thing at least for me like going into any networking event I've never gone to an event and like regretted it so like when the time comes I'll I'll always dread it I'm like oh god I don't want to go it's like 5 o'clock whatever it is but I'll still go and I'll, I'll tell myself let me at least talk to one person yeah. if I make at least one connection that's worth it for me for whatever reason 
Um, but to, to your point, like going to Bengali networking events is definitely a lot more helpful. Networking with people that are like minorities, like there's, there's that immediate connection there. And yeah. it's, it's kind of messed up when you think about it, right? Because when you think about it, like from that perspective, then it's like white people obviously feel the same way. Like people of a certain sect will feel the same way towards like person from their same sect. It's only natural. You feel at peace. You, you, you feel more comfortable because like you sort of have a similar background, right? Yeah. It's just me rambling, but no. No, no, I, I, it's a very good point. Yeah, it's super important. So, uh, what's next for you? Like, what else do you have going on? So, you're at the startup. Yeah. And you're doing really, really well there. Like, what else do you have plan, uh, planned for career or, mm-hmm. you know, personal or anything? So, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and it's it's so funny. I think one of the um, one of the weak points that a lot of high achievers or, like, go-getters have is wanting to do everything. Um, seven... I would say seven months ago, I, I burnt out. Uh, like I, I wasn't getting anything done. I was constantly tired. I wasn't taking care of myself, mainly because I was sort of saying yes to everything, but no one was forcing me to say yes. It was just me saying, oh, here's an opportunity. I want to jump at this opportunity. I'm just going to you know, run with it. But what ends up happening is like if you, you know that analogy, like if you spread Nutella too thin over like bread, like you're not really getting Nutella anywhere. Yeah, yeah. That's the analogy I like to think of where it's like, or be, be more strategic about like who you're spending your time with which projects you're choosing, you're picking and choosing. And I think I'm, I was fortunate enough to have such a great role model and still have such great role models from my first corporate job that I'm, like, I'm still in touch with like my ex-manager and my ex-CEO, like they're friends now. Like the CEO is like a career mentor for me. And like we, we had like a very frank conversation over dinner where he was like, Mo, like you're burning yourself out, dude. Right? Like you're, you're doing, you're trying to do all this shit, which is like great. You don't know why you're doing it besides the fact that you're like, you're probably afraid of missing out on like opportunity for whatever reason. Um, and you're not doing anything well, right? You're, you're spreading yourself too thin. You're not doing anything well. You're going to end up disappointing not only yourself, but everyone else that like you've either said yes to or like committed to. So seven months ago, I, I paused a lot of different things. Um, I paused a lot of like, I, I took a step back from the nonprofit that I'm, I'm still active in, but like very passively as a board member, just advising. Which nonprofit is this? The Afghanistan International Foundation for the Blind. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we, like I handled the capstone project for the fundraising. We helped build the blind uh, school for blind kids in Kabul. And then that was for me, it was like, all right, guys, I have to like step back a little bit. Like, let me know when we have our meetings. I can come and advise and like connect if needed. But like, I can't do more than that for right now. Um, I was studying for the GMAT at the same time, which is freaking insane. I think it's understated, like how, how yeah. difficult that is having a full-time job and having a family like you have to be responsible for. Um, I put that on pause. Um, I used to re- be religious about going to the gym. Um, that I also reeled back in like against my best wishes, but I knew I was burning myself out. So like now if I, if I sleep past an alarm on a weekend, I'm like, okay, this is like, you're still fine. Like go out for a walk or do something like you're still fine. I mean, I've learned to say no to a lot of different things. So I'm, I'm a lot more specific about like who I want to help. And like, like Boney, for example, this was something like I had reached out to you directly, right? Yeah. No, that was, that was very specific for me. I was like, you know, I, I really want to get into like the Bengali community, see what, see what's happening there. Um, but like different people like reach out or like different organizations. Like I, I think now I'm more comfortable with sort of saying, Hey, this is not something that I'm incredibly too passionate about where I can see myself doing it extensively. I'll end up disappointing not only you, but seriously me and I'll beat myself up about it more. And that's something a lot of high achievers, um, I think, fall into the trap of. But it's it's a learning lesson. It's a yeah, learning lesson. Steve, Steve Jobs uh, was notorious for saying no. He said that's the most important thing mm-hmm. you can do is say no. Uh, yeah, I fall into that problem also. I say yes to a lot of things, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely have to learn how to say no. Um, and, uh, yeah, cool. I mean, if you have things going on and uh, you want us to promote, just mm-hmm. let, let us know. But... Uh, 
great conversation. Definitely interesting perspective because mm-hmm. of, I guess, you know, where you grew up and uh, and also just, uh, you know, I guess, you know, your interests. Is that how long we've been talking for? Yeah, 39 Whoa. minutes. Whoa. right? Wow, you got to, like, cut that down. No, nah, I think we'll leave it. Really? Yeah, we'll leave it. You think it. people will, will, like, stay on a podcast and listen to some guy talk about, like, his experience for 40 minutes? Yeah, people do. Joe Rogan's podcasts are, are, are two hours sometimes. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. I respect that. We're, we're definitely more interesting than Yeah, Joe we're definitely more interesting. This All is right, good. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Gotta be honest With diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah Bengalis in New York All over the world uh, It's the bony show uh, hey. Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit To the gangs we with It doesn't matter We the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we 